Hey, how's it going, Wildcast? This is the Words to the Wildcat podcast. My name is Tommy Prince Fernandez. My pronouns are he, him, his, or my name. And joining me, as always, is Arely Ruiz. What's up, Wildcats? My name is Arely Ruiz. My pronouns are she, her, ellas. And we wanted to say thank you for joining us today. This is season three, episode five uh, of Words to the Wildcats. We are excited to have you here joining us for this uh, week's theme of Foundations of Leadership. And with that being said, we have a special guest joining us today named Sara Omrani, who is a current uh, CWU student and is a political organizer for Ellsberg Call to Action. Sara, we appreciate you joining for us. Would you like to take a little time to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on here. Uh, my name is Sara Omrani. I use the pronouns she or they. Uh, I was born in Sweden. Uh, my father is a political refugee from Iran, and my mother is a lady from the Boston area. <laughs> uh, I came to the United States when I was little, and when I was four years old, my mom got a job at Central Washington University. And other than a brief stint when in my early 20s, when I uh, lived in Seattle and Bellingham, I've lived here since 1996, and uh, I am returning as a 28, almost 29 year old to get my degree here at CWU. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sara, for letting everyone know a little bit more about yourself. We're really excited to have you here today. Um, I already told you this, but I want to let the Wildcats know uh, Sara is great. I have really only interacted her with once before this. And I personally admire her in terms of her leadership and her drive to make sure that there's change in Ellensburg as much as I admire a lot of people in Ellensburg. Uh, Sara, to me, is great. I've just heard about her and I just think she's amazing. So that's why we chose her for this podcast. Um, so Sara, if you want to explain a little bit of why I admire you so much in terms of like your community activism and what your role is in the Ellensburg community as of right now in terms of like the BLM protests and things of that nature. Yeah, Aureli, thank you so much. You're so sweet. Um, <laughs> I'm like gonna cry. Um, uh, so currently right now, I am one of the main organizers for Ellensburg Calls to Action. A lot of you, if you were in town, uh, saw us uh, daily on the corner of 5th and Main. We were protesting on behalf of Black Lives Matter, although we Ellensburg Calls to Action is not associated uh, with Black Lives Matter officially. Um, we are not a branch or anything like that um, uh, or or an arm of them. Uh, <clears throat> and I uh, got involved with that because uh, there were these two girls who organized the Black Lives Matter March on June 1st. And I attended that and I ended up speaking at that because they were um, inviting people to speak. And one person that was invited to speak or, or chose to uh, speak uh, was a young man. And he was a CWU student. He was a black man. And he said, I want to see people at the courthouse every day until you know we see some justice. And that's what initiated people going to the corner to protest. I really got involved. So um, I've, I've mentioned it before to Aureli and Tommy, but uh, I have not mentioned on the podcast, I take care of a farm. I'm a farmer. <clears throat> One of the things that I farm is ducks for meat and for eggs. And so springtime is baby duck season. And so I actually was raising an orphan baby duck and I didn't attend the first week of protests because like, 
it was so labor intensive to take care of this baby duck. And I didn't really think it was like fair to, you know, take a duck out like in my pocket or something to this, uh, to this protest, because it was, it was, um, I mean, it's been very tense, but there was the first week, there was a man that was circling the block uh, saying that he was going to shoot the protesters. So I just was like, I don't know, I'm responsible for this like baby animal. I don't really want to be bringing them into this situation. And so I made a group, uh, a Facebook group so that we could all communicate and, you know, uh, do the protesters need water? Who's going to be there? When were they going to be there? We don't want anyone alone because that could be dangerous. So I made this Facebook group and it just exploded overnight. Uh, there were like, I think 500 people within the first three or four days that joined. I, w I never expected to see that many people at the march because there was like, I would say probably 500, 600 people there. Um, and, and that's a conservative estimate. Um, and then, you know, all these people joined this Facebook group. And then as soon as I was able to, which was like about a week into the protests, I was coming there every day. And um, there was um, a CBU student uh, who was doing a lot of the labor, but then she, you know, she had graduated, she had moved on and she's like, I'm going to be leaving Ellensburg here in a little while. And that's how I kind of fell into the role of uh taking care of the supplies, taking care of making sure that, you know, we ended up getting body cams because we were getting threatened so much, making sure the body cams are charged, um, taking care of a, curating an Instagram account that let other people know that wanted to be involved with the protests, where the protests were, what time they were. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at now. We've ceased the daily protests because the winters can be really harsh here and we did want to make it a accessible to everybody and there were a fair number of our protesters that were like we're gonna literally freeze out here um, which is understandable so we have scaled back to weekly demonstrations and um, I would say endeavors of like mutual aid um, including trying to recruit people to volunteer at the cold weather shelter and um, volunteer at Apoyo in addition to kind of like direct action things like somebody saying, help, I need $500 for rent and figuring out how to make that happen. Or um, in the case where um, we had people uh, uh, getting in trouble for chalking um <laughs> kind of community support around that you know how can how can we help you are there fines to pay um do you just need support do you need the number of an attorney so that's that's where that's where we're at we're at now <laughs> and that's so great to hear that you know you kind of thought about other people's needs when it came to coming through these protests protests so i just to say i appreciate you for that just caring for other than yourself when it came to attending these events and but going back to like how you're so passionate for being an advocate for social justice, where does that come from? What kind of inspired you throughout your life to really be involved in being an advocate? I mentioned that I was born in Sweden. My father's a political refugee. Um, my father is from Iran. He's an indigenous person of Iran. He is of the tribe Bakhtiari, and we are no nomadic pastoralist people. And um, he was involved in the Iranian revolution in 79 and was subsequently um, imprisoned and tortured, um, physically tortured. And from what my understanding of the situation is, he and multiple other people were supposed to be executed, 
killed and instead they were able to be either released or smuggled out of the prison and then from there walked on foot from the border um, from Iran to Turkey and became asylum seekers. And they were granted asylum, two of them were granted asylum in Canada and two of them were granted asylum in Sweden. Um, and so that, that kind of informs my approach to activism and, and why I feel called to advocate for people and for myself. And additionally, um, going back to the fact that um, I'm an indigenous person of Iran. My uh, mom and Bazork, which is um, Farsi for grandmother, um, she was born in 1929. Uh, around 1950, um, we were experiencing a lot of interference from the Western world and oil had been discovered. So uh, we have the Bakhtiari people historically are uh, very powerful people. If you wanted to win a war, if you wanted to, if Iran wanted to go to war, we were a big part of their military force. So of course, you know, we're very powerful. Um, we are kind of like a sovereign, you know, people. And then they discover oil on our lands. And I think we all know what happens when governments discover oil, especially when it's on the land of people who don't live like a, a a traditionally Western life, like we're not there on that on the place where our the oil has been found all the time. We move from summer um, summer pastures to winter pastures, and so during the fifties, uh, they started killing uh, our tribal leaders called Khans, trying to force us into sedentary lifestyles so that could, they could take oil. So for me, having this understanding that my grandmother, who you know, you think about your grandmother, um, you you might if you're lucky enough, have a relationship with this person, they might still be alive. And so my grandmother was born into these nomadic pastoralist community and got to live like that from my understanding of the timeline until she was, you know, in her twenties um, when she would have been getting married. And uh, to see that, to see the, slaughter of tribal leaders and to see the kind of forced westernization which i don't necessarily think that um westernization i mean it would be take a lot to unpack is it inherently evil is it an inherently um bad force but in in the case of westernization with the intent of uh making certain people sedentary so that western governments could profit off the oil on their lands that that is obviously not good. And she died um, two years after I was born, um, I believe, um, somewhere somewhere in between like six months and two years. And um, uh, so she went from living this nomadic pastoralist life, watching her cons get killed, um, watching, you know, the the climate of the tribe and and in the climate of Iran change. Uh, living through this people's revolution. And for those of you that don't know about the Iranian revolution, uh, it was hijacked by religious extremists. People weren't having a revolution because uh, they thought that they wanted to have like Islamic extremists in charge of their government. That wasn't what the revolution was about. They wanted to um, 
be a, be autonomous. They didn't want to be westernized. They didn't want to be controlled by religious extremists. They wanted to be able to be Iranians. And she died under this oppressive extremist religious regime. And I just think that the work towards global liberation has been going on for a long time. You know, you look at Pan-Africanism um, back in the early 1900s and it's just one of those things where I feel an obligation. I feel called to advocate for this um, because not only is it in my best interest, but I feel like I owe it like to my ancestors to, to not be cliche, but truly I feel, I feel called to do this in, in, a, in a way. Thank you so much for sharing that. Just in general, it is actually pretty inspiring to hear that you know so much about your family history personally. I don't know much of my family history and just to hear about the injustices that your grandmother went through and the rest of your family, like it sounds pretty, not incredible for them, but like just incredible that you know so much and you feel called to kind of like do them justice and protect and honor them in this way. And you're choosing it to be like, there's a different way that everyone can take like your family history and then people just in general can misconstrue their own family history. It's just a whole deal just because we're not always informed. But hearing you be so informed and using that power within you and taking maybe in my personal, it's like taking power from your ancestors and moving forward to make sure that nothing like this happens again is really inspiring and it makes me want to go learn about my family history a little bit not a little bit a lot of it but um I just wanted to say that and I think it's very powerful and you were mentioning just like how you were called to action I think something else that me and Tommy were talking about when we discussed how we wanted to move in this podcast was a little bit also of how you got called when you were mentioning um that incident that you were talking about about witnessing police brutality that was a very like moving story and if you're willing to share that we'd really appreciate it just so um we understand not only your family history but it'd be great to understand like your personal ties to Ellensburg in that way so um I want to first clarify that I per I didn't I didn't witness it with my own eyes I've seen video I've read police reports and I was out that night so and anybody that knows the layout of <clears throat> Ellensburg bars I was at the horseshoe and it happened at 301. Um, and that just to me, like, I was like, I was like, Jesus, that so, so I've experienced um, racism in Ellensburg. I've seen other people experience racism in Ellensburg. I'm, I am not, it's not as though before this incident, I was unaware that racism was a force in Ellensburg. Um, but I was just shocked at kind of how this situation played out. So um, I haven't spoken to this party, so I'm not going to use their name. But if you personally, if a person were interested, um, all you would have to do is, is Google um, 301 police brutality. So there was a young gentleman, um, a young black man who was in town for a funeral. And he, he and his friends afterwards, um, or actually it's unclear to me if it was prior to it or 
you know, they had the funeral the next day. In any case, these people that were getting together for an awfully somber thing, understandably wanted to go out and have some fun and, you know, maybe celebrate their, um, their, their loved one's life or something like that. So they went to 301 and his friends got in before him. And this young man um, was waiting in line and was accused by a little white woman of cutting in line. And if you're, again, familiar with the Ellensburg bar scene, you will know that there are EPD officers out patrolling. And so I don't believe that the police were called. I believe that it was something that they saw with their own eyes, but they see this kind of argument escalating. And the doorman um, was like, he like, like he cut or something. And so there's people arguing, did he cut, did he not cut? And there is um, outside the door of 301, because it's on a quarter corner, there's this little um, kind of spot of concrete. And it's different from the brick pavers. Because this man was standing on the concrete, they argued that he was on private property. And so he was trespassing. And that's why they had to um and he wasn't complying with um, leaving, that they had to uh, slam him to the ground and restrain him on top of him while he's on the ground with a knee on the back of his neck. Um, I don't think I really need to mention uh, the dangers of that. I think we all kind of know the risks of restraining people in that way. Um, And so I, I consider that police brutality. I don't know. I mean, I, I would say I don't know people who would, but uh, that that kind of that is contradictory to the next part of what I'm about to tell you. So, at this time, um, I was had been elected the vice chair of the Kittitas County Democrats, and I was one of the only people under the age of 50 on their kind of team. And so I took care of the social media. They were like, yay, like a young person that knows how to how to work Facebook and all these these newfangled things. So I was the, the social media presence and I uh, was moderating. They have an open discussion board. I was one of the, the moderators. And I said, this is police brutality. This is unacceptable. And in this group, we will not be arguing what he could have done to prevent um, being like choke slammed and thrown to the ground and restrained with a knee. And I was called a Nazi (laughs) and saying that I was like impinging on people's free speech. And uh, it was like the the idea was thrown around that I'm, you know, racist towards white people, that I hate cops. Um, And and being opposed to police brutality is not, you know, thinking each individual cop is evil, you know, and twisting their mustache, twirling it, laughing, ha, 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 and, and dreaming up evil things. It's that, you know they are part of a oppressive force. And we see that in cases like I I, I cannot rationalize why a man accused of trespassing, not even proven to be trespassing, but accused of trespassing um, should be manhandled in that way. There's there's just no excuse. Um, So after that, um, I was kind of chased out of town by the Democrats and other people. Um, with little, little torches and pitchforks. Um, and uh, I didn't mention this um, talking to you folks earlier, so I forgot to, but um, I personally felt like I was targeted by the police after that. After speaking out against it, I was again at the horseshoe and I was outside 
and um, my best friend and an, another another male friend were kind of standing probably half the block up behind me. So they saw this interaction, but they didn't hear what happened. And I was standing outside and, and a police car rolls up, turning into the alley. And they're like, you're Sarah Omrani. And it's like, I'm used to people mispronouncing my name. And I was just like, yes. And they're like, okay, and keep driving. And I was like, I didn't, like, I didn't have any kind of interaction tonight where anybody, like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just hanging out playing pool with my friends. The only thing that I could think is that they saw me, like, saying things both in this account and I had made posts on the social media. And I think I had, like, liked a couple comments or something because EPD had posted about it. They were like, oh, it's not police brutality. And they released these, um, these uh, you know, police reports, these police statements and the police admitting what they did. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, like he was being resistant. So I had to knock him off um, balance by putting my knee behind his leg and and pushing him. And then I had to restrain him with my knee. So they didn't call it police brutality, but they they spelled out what they did. And I don't know how you couldn't see that as police brutality. So I ended up taking a hiatus from politics just because I was like, there are so many white people in this town that they're just not ready to hear it. And I'm not really willing to traumatize myself for people that are going to be abusive to me. And especially as like a marginalized person to be called a Nazi for simply saying we're not going to discuss a, something that's victim blaming. It's just really backwards. And it really, really turned me off to the whole thing. So then, as I mentioned previously, um, these girls organized this, this march. And I thought it was going to be, I mean, I heard about it through my vet and my personal friend, um, and she has a, like a 16-year-old son. She's like, oh, this is going around on Snapchat. I just thought you'd want to know. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, I I think supporting leadership and I think supporting youth leadership is really important. So I'm just going to go as <clears throat> solidarity. Like, good job, girls. You did it. Like, you, you did this. Um, and then it was huge. It was huge. I've never seen as many people in that place, um, in as many people in one place in Ellensburg ever, unless you're talking about like at the rodeo and fairgrounds. Um, but I've never seen people come together for a cause. You know, we had a woman's march here. Um, uh, yeah. And so after speaking at the event, after seeing so many people being on the same page, I was like, maybe people are finally ready to listen. Um, maybe cause when I, I actually spoke about the 301 incidents and all these people were saying like, you know, say his name. And, and like when I was saying what people, what white people can do to prevent things like this is get in between, um, and make sure that these people are, their bodies are protected, like protect these black people with your body. Like your white body is less likely to be a victim of police brutality than a black person. So get in there and everybody was like cheering and I was like, okay, they're really, they're really vibing with this. Like they really, they're no really like I had expected people to, to I'm, I've been called too radical for a really long time. And I think finally we are getting to the point where people see that um, radical simply means going to the root of a problem. It doesn't mean to be an extremist. Uh, <laughs> and as somebody whose own country has been hijacked by religious extremists, I, 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 feel like I have a pretty good grasp on that. It's not, it's not extremism. Um, it is going to the root of a problem. And so many people are like, you're too radical. And they meant, you know, 
extremists. And I'm like, it's not. Uh, you can now see that even if police aren't shooting people, as as we saw with George Floyd, it, they don't they don't need to be armed. It's not necessarily them being armed. That, that's the problem, which some people like to, to argue. Um, there is a problem inherent in policing. So I felt like people were finally willing to listen. And that was amazing to me. So, you know, when I saw people get on board, um, when I saw how the the interest in in the Facebook group, that was that was this this huge, huge turning point for me. Yeah. And I think you nailed it when you said people are now willing to listen. Like even when you're going back to like what you experienced in like 2018, was there kind of like a loss of hope? Like I'm speaking up for this issue, but then I'm just gonna receive negative response. And that's basically out of your control because the people in charge have those, have their views and they're kind of hard headed in a way. So just in that moment, like, did you ever think that change would possibly come? Uh, thank you, Tommy. No, I, I like to be completely honest, because the the chair at the time was like, you know, you need to make a public apology. You need to say that this doesn't represent our views. And I was like, I'm not going to recant what I said. Um, I can't. I can't in good conscience <laughs> re re redact what I said. And um, I felt I felt like depressed and alienated from the community. I felt like there were all these people that said that they supported us. You know, these people had like a DACA rally and they were like, oh, go dreamers. Um, and they'll, they'll say, you know, Black Lives Matter. But when it happened in their town, in their house, so to speak, well, maybe, maybe the police had a reason to choke slam this guy. And, and instead of, being open to perhaps we had had an incidence of police brutality, perhaps it's not okay to physically abuse people for trespassing. Um, they went immediately to ostracizing me and, um, you know, saying horrible things about me. And so suddenly I was in this situation where everyone was angry at me. Conservatives were angry at me. The police were angry at me. The people that were supposed to be on my side, you know, liberals, um, leftists, Democrats, whatever you want to, whatever category that's left of center that you want to define, they were angry at me. There was a very, very small handful of people that supported me, um, but they were also seen as too radical and were kind of like, you know, on the margins. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a loss of hope. That's part of the reason that I just kind of went to farming and, you know, doing my own stuff full time because I believe that skill sharing is really important. And I didn't think that I was ever going to interact with the the public in that kind of context ever again, because I was like, obviously people aren't ready to hear it, but I can help out fellow people of color by obtaining skills like I can you know, um, butcher and, and dress a bird. Um, I can shoot and, you know, teach other people about shooting, like for hunting or whatever. Um, I have gardening skills. And I was like, I'm just going to accumulate these skills and then I'm going to share them for free with other people of color. And that's going to be my work um, because people just aren't ready to hear the political part of it. Um, and, and I especially don't, didn't feel like um, putting myself at risk physically and emotionally and like mentally um, for people that just didn't want to hear. You will exhaust yourself screaming at a brick wall. So, yeah. <laughs> and um, would you say that 
people uh, became ready to be open and hear after everything unfortunately happened with the events of George Floyd. And I guess being around everything with COVID, people were kind of away from their lives and kind of just had a chance to sit down and really go into this and really kind of think about everything that's happening. And that's kind of when everything started to like formulate when people will start gathering masses to come to these protests. And I just think that's kind of just like a big reason for that was because of people in regards to COVID. Yeah, I agree. So one thing that obviously I want to make clear is we as a society have been turning our turning our cheek to the plight of Black people in the United States. Um, <clears throat> so I think that COVID and how social media and the internet has evolved, I think it created this perfect storm of we were able to communicate with each other and disseminate information in a way that even 10 years ago was impossible. Um, like when the Occupy, you know, uh, movements were going on, um, they were not able to communicate in the same way that we were or we have been. Um, also, too, you know, people are isolated. Um, they're they're still obviously able to look away, but it's a little bit more difficult because it's a little bit more in your face and we don't really have anything to do and people are getting a little bit stir crazy. And I think, um, you know, and I don't, I'm, could spend hours unpacking um, the ethics of the motivations, but I also think too, people were feeling angry. People were feeling really angry and angry at, I guess I would say, people not caring because I think a lot of us were also like we're in the middle of a pandemic and you guys are out here not wanting to wear masks not wanting to pretend this is real and you're killing people and then on top of this we have this pandemic of police brutality and racism and and everybody just just wants to keep turning their head and so I think people were angry they were motivated and it just felt like this huge turning point because I had people I had people that I've known since I was a child here that wouldn't speak to me <laughs> like a couple of years ago. They were like, oh, she's too intense. She's just so angry. And they they were like, you know, I just want to say, Sarah, you're such a different person. You're not so angry anymore. And I'm like, no, it's not that. I'm still just as angry. Trust me. It's that you are all now on the same level as I am. You are now all like, wow, this is absolutely awful. Um, and I don't love that we've had to get to this place, but I do, it doesn't, it does make me feel hopeful that maybe this, this, like the time has come, so to speak. Uh, this is the tipping point. Uh, Cause like, we can't go back from this, you know, um, political science and philosophy, you know, uh, minded people have, have pointed out that there's no unringing this bell. <laughs> so, yeah kind of like to go back and address like this question a little bit further, like unpack it a little bit more. I was wondering, cause I know when we discussed earlier, you mentioned how you never thought you would see the day. And that was something you kept like repeating. And I was like, wow, that's so like wild to me just cause like, I'm a very like hopeful and like, I always feel like I'm going to see the day and things are going to change. But now that like I'm here and I've understood the problems and how things don't always change I start to lose that not the sense of like optimism but like 
I'm becoming a little bit more realistic. So if you could like explain a little bit further how Ellensburg as a whole has like changed a little bit to give some people a perspective of how like it is incredible that things are changing. 100%. Thank you, Aureli. Um, okay, so like I said, I moved here in 1996. Um, I was four years old at the time. Uh, I had lived in kind of like the Bay Area. And even though it was like a wealthy place, there is a more diverse population in metropolitan areas in California. Uh, I didn't feel like I stuck out and this is probably super privileged of me, but like I was living with, so my mom's white and my, my dad is from Iran and I was living with like my mom's family, these wealthy white people that were involved in the church and people were nice to me because I was like, you know, like, like little, little church sweetheart. And, and also too, I think there was racism like obviously there was racism down in California, but I don't know if it was a combination of like my social privilege and me being too young or whatever. But I just, I just, in my, in my memory, California is just all sunshine and rainbows and, and lemonade and, you know, palm trees and, and good things. And then I came up here and all of a sudden I was like the bad kid. And I didn't understand like, what was going on and then in third grade 9-11 happened and all of a sudden when I told people I mean people always laughed at me when they asked you know where I was from and I was like oh Sweden I'm Swedish um people always laughed at me but it it became decidedly hostile after 9-11 I had people um yell racial slurs at me like adults and I'm a third grader that's like what seven or eight years old adults being like Blah, blah, go back where you came from, bleepity bleep bleep. Um, I had people throw things at me out of moving cars. Um, I've had I've had numerous um, racist experiences, um, both witness other people and, and stories from other people and my own. And even though it's gotten like a little bit better, um, like I don't think that the Saudi students, um, because my mom was an uh, English as a learned language professor here in the international dist uh, international department, um, when they had Saudi students come over, some of their Saudi students were getting beat up for being Middle Eastern. Um, yeah, like violently beat up on campus by white people um, because of post 9-11 antagonistic attitudes. So as far as I know, we're not still having outright instances of violence like that. I haven't heard about that in a while, but that was, let's see, I was 13 um, when when Saudi students started coming here, like uh, like large numbers of them. So that's not that long ago. Like I said, I'm 28, I'll be 29 and the end of March. That's <laughs> like, I mean, I guess, I don't know, consider what you consider long, but that's not that long ago. And then you know, you take into account what I said about the, the issue of police brutality um, at 301, and you add in, uh, and I haven't mentioned this, but there were KKK pamphlets being passed out, and I believe it was 2017, and everybody just thinks it's like this joke, and so seeing people being like, ha ha, there's no racism in Ellensburg, it's just this one lone wolf passing out KKK pamphlets. Splits. And I'm like, it's not. I have so much anecdotal evidence from my own lived experiences and people that I care about, like, because <clears throat> I mean, you know, 
international students, they come here with like nobody and they really kind of like bond with the, 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 the people in the department. And it's like, so to, to go from laughing at the KKK to saying people that speak out against police brutality are Nazis to, to ha what, where we're at today, just yesterday, the city council across the board approved a diversity, equity, and inclusion um, commission. That is huge. Like I said in our first meeting, like I just never thought, I never thought I'd see this. I thought I was just going to spend the rest of my life in Ellensburg, you know, being a farmer and just not talking to anybody and not engaging with anybody politically. And to see this change so dramatically. Um, also, too, one of the things that was like really shocking to me, um, and I was riding this high for a while, was um, when we uh, talked to city council about painting a Black Lives Matter mural, um, they ended up wanting to do it on the street, which I'm kind of glad that that was scrapped because there were a lot of uh, Black community members that were like, people are going to deface this and it feels a little bit on the nose for it to be on like on the street where people can just kind of like disrespect like we already feel like we're being walked all over and driven all over in a very literal sense um uh so we don't like that but um we put out a fundraiser to fund the mural and in less than 24 hours we had raised over five thousand dollars so people in Ellensburg were really willing to put their money where their mouth was. Like, it wasn't just like they were like, oh, yeah, we'll show up to this march one time. People were invested. And at the at the protests, we had people coming by, giving us um, food, giving us water. Um, Weinergers came by and brought us ice cream. Like, it was, I never thought I'd see the day where Weinergers and Gerald's has Black Lives Matter on their little, their, their little sign uh, outside on the sidewalk. Like, it's just, it's really surreal. <laughs> yeah, and hope is great, but how do we think that we continue moving forward as a community, making sure that we don't resort back to old ways? I, I know, as you said earlier, I think you said like political science, like it's, you don't really resort back, but then how do we continue to move forward? Yeah, how do we avoid stagnation and continue? Yeah, 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 I think that's very important. So one thing that um, I know we talked about in um, previously when we had a meeting was uh, like reactivity. So one thing to keep this, this moving is I like to explain it as we kind of, you know, we did this daily protest that was kind of triage and um, our work is not done now that Biden is in office. I mean, there were drone strikes going on during Obama's presidency, which was Biden was vice president. Um, uh, but we can move uh, on to like, uh, a weekly demonstration. Um, I am investing my time in trying to get um, more people that aren't racist, um, I guess anti-racist people into city council. Um, yeah, it's just been one of those things where uh, right now, because of the momentum that this has gained, we're facing a lot of backlash. We're facing a lot of conservative backlash. And they think that, like, they they straight up call us communists. They put me and uh, Todd Milden and my co-organizer, Trenton uh, Gardner, and all of city council and, and uh, the mayor, they've put us on a most wanted poster that they drew uh, because we're communists. Yeah, um, I can email you all that later if you want to like I don't know like include that in a little uh little 
a floating box or something. But um, it's like it's comical, but it's also one of those things where they really are they're pushing back, and that's fine um, because I truly believe they are this really really loud minority. Um, but they weren't always a minority. Um, and I think that's pretty clear on like the things that I've mentioned earlier and how, how Allensburg has changed. Allensburg for a very long time, it was just, just fine to be racist. Um, you know, just fine to dress up as a football player and do blackface. I have pictures of that too. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so to move forward, to try to get people in city government that are willing to carry on the work that needs to be done, and also to, among our communities, um, build community power and build um, relationships so that we can support each other. And honestly, I think that is great. Me being a student here since 2016, I have witnessed some of the what you're experiencing, like the KKK posters. I was there for that and I remember they were came in a little baggy and they had candy in them and it made me so uncomfortable but no one really understood why and I'm just very grateful for people like you and who are out here doing the work and being leaders not only out in the streets but in the classrooms they're leaders in organizations student-led organizations here they're doing their part either through conversations or actively out and protesting and for those of you listening, the Wildcats that are listening, um, a leader is just someone who is willing to put themselves in the backseat or willing to put themselves forward. It doesn't really matter. Just where you're needed, you're there. Um, I just want to say thank you again, Sara, for always just, from what I know about you, my version of you is always, because I've always just seen you in this light. I really do admire you and I really appreciate you coming on this podcast sharing your experience and going forth and making a difference. Cause even though certain people may not see, Oh, I'm not making a difference. I'm just doing the right thing. Yes, you are. You are making a difference and you're just doing the right thing. So we really wanted to say thank you. And I appreciate you. And I'm very certain that a lot more people appreciate you. Hopefully we can keep this momentum going and Ellensburg can be a very safe and inclusive place that everyone can come and enjoy being a student here build a family here who knows that's just my little rant i really love ellensburg not always had the best experiences here but it is home to a certain extent we're good to wrap it up i just want to Arelli, you're so sweet thank you so much and tommy thank you so much and i just wanted to uh yeah just thank you for the time and uh and once again, thank you, Star, for joining us. And thank you, Wildcats, for joining us today as well. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to hear more, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, or YouTube at Order to the Wildcat. And if you're interested in any other amazing programs that the CLCE has to offer, check out our website at cwu.presence.io and follow our social media pages. Also remember, you can uh, receive credit towards earning your Wildcat Leadership, uh, Leadership Academy Certificate by just simply doing a quick assessment of this video. And you can learn more about that on the website that Arely mentioned. But in the meantime, please join us again next time. I'm Tommy. And I'm Arely, and this has been Word to Wildcats.